It's not that God is going to destroy the righteous along with the wicked. It's the absolute opposite. God is not going to destroy the wicked because of the righteous. This is Chapter, Verse, and Season, a lectionary podcast from Yale Bible Study. Join us each week as two Yale Divinity School professors look at an upcoming text from the Revised Common Lectionary. This episode, we have Joel Baden, professor of Hebrew Bible and director of the Center for Continuing Education, and Tisa Wenger, professor of American Religious History. They're discussing Genesis chapter 18, verses 20 through 32, which is appointed for track two on the seventh Sunday after Pentecost, proper 12, in year C. The text is read for you by Mike McAlintal, liturgical minister and chapel communications manager of Marquand Chapel here at Yale Divinity School. Genesis, chapter 18, verses 20 through 32. The Lord said to Abraham, How great is the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah, and how very grave their sin! I must go down and see whether they have done all together according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, while Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham came near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not forgive it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will forgive the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered, Let me take it upon myself to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again he spoke to him, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty I will not do it. Then he said, O do not let the Lord be angry if I speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. He said, Let me take it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. He answered, For the sake of twenty I will not destroy it. Then he said, O do not let the Lord be angry if I speak just once more. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten I will not destroy it. So, Tisa, we're jumping in here in the reading, sort of into the middle of the Sodom and Gomorrah story, specifically landing on, you know, this this great dialogue, famous dialogue between Abraham and God, where Abraham sort of appears to be negotiating on behalf of the inhabitants of Sodom, trying to, uh, you know, encourage God not to destroy the city if there are innocent people in it. Before we get into the details of, of that dialogue, which I, I find incredibly interesting, it's always useful when 
bringing up the Sodom and Gomorrah story, to remind everyone what the story is actually about and what it's not actually about. And just to put it very uh, plainly, this story, which has for so long been understood traditionally as a story about and condemning of homosexuality, is in fact no such thing. And is in fact a story condemning uh, a lack of hospitality. The homosexuality that appears to be uh, present in it is really not at all its central concern. And the story from start to finish, going all the way back to when uh, God appears to Abraham at his tents and all the way through, is really about people not being hospitable to their neighbors, to the strangers in their midst, and simply to, to their fellow humans more generally. Having said that and gotten that out of the way, maybe we should can turn to, the, uh, to this dialogue where God says to Abraham, first God says to God's self, you know, I should probably tell Abraham what I'm about to do. Right. Well, you know, it strikes me, not only does the, pa- the chapter here, which is, you know, before the passage that we're really focusing on, but begins with the Lord appearing to Abraham. And as you said, it's about hospitality, about how to receive um, people hospitably. But it's also about God's promise to Abraham, the, the promise that Sarah will bear a child. And the Lord says that he will not hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. So, I mean, what's, what's that about? You know, God has chosen Abraham. Why is that significant for understanding this dialogue between uh, the Lord and Abraham? It's funny. I, I will admit that I have a sort of, I think it's justified, but a sort of particular reading of this passage. Traditionally, the link between the chosenness of Abraham and this dialogue is understood as, in some sense, proof of why Abraham was worthy of being chosen. Right? Abraham brings this you know, deep morality to the conversation and, in a sense, challenges, challenges God's own morality. This justifies Abraham as being the, the, the sort of chosen individual to become the ancestor of God's people because God seems to be suggesting, at least Abraham seems to think, that uh, God's simply going to go in and sweep away the city uh, sort of almost carelessly because I hear bad things about it almost. I'll go down and see whether it's as bad as I hear and I'll take care of it if so. And Abraham, of course, comes back and says like, you wouldn't do such a thing, right? Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just, right? So it feels like, it feels like, a, like, a, like a challenge, which is a sort of remarkable moment. But again, we can understand as, well, that's, and I think it's typically understood as well, this is why Abraham was chosen because he's so good. He's almost better than God good, at least in, in this moment. Aside from that being a little bit of a weird thing to say, <laughs> that Abraham is sort of morally more righteous than the deity. I think that's not really what's happening here. Well, uh, it's funny, the progression of the narrative, right? Like it's not, I mean... The Lord says, how great is the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah? And I mean, for one thing, that's 
the first time Sodom and Gomorrah are mentioned in the in the chapter, at least, and the passage, you know, it's it's a it's a kind of funny progression. I have to go and check out the outcry. But it's Abraham who first mentions, suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place? What's the <laughs> it's where, not where it's get... not God who says yeah, where does he get that number? Right. You know, this this to me has always struck me as the funniest thing that's happening here, which is for all, everything he's saying, Abraham is effectively negotiating against himself the entire time. God didn't come in and say, I'm going to destroy the city. I don't care how many people are in there. And then Abraham like whittles him down. Abraham starts at 50. Right? God may have started at five. I assume that God starts really at one. But Abraham comes in and he's like, boy, what if it's what if there were what if there were 50? And, you know, God's response isn't, oh, I hadn't thought about that. Or, I don't know, that seems like a little bit low, but okay. God goes, yeah, yeah, no, 50's fine. And it sort of waits as if like, kind of waiting for Abraham to get there on his own, as opposed to Abraham pushing God. But Abraham seems to be so hesitant um, and so afraid that he's going to be, that God is going to be angry for suggesting this, you know? Oh, do not let the Lord be angry if I speak. Suppose 30 are found there. But does he have a reason for thinking that God might be angry at this suggestion? I tend to think that this really just has to do with lack of familiarity with this particular deity. Right? Remember, this is still relatively early in Abraham and God's relationship. And they've only kind of just met. And Abraham may be used to all the other deities out there whom you would never have even such a dialogue with, right? You would never have access to any kind of conversation with. And certainly, I think most gods were pretty terrifying to most people back then. So Abraham, I think, feels like he's, you know, maybe pushing it as he's exploring the boundaries. But that doesn't mean that he actually is. In fact, uh, you know, the way that I, the way that I read this is not Abraham is changing God's sense of justice, but that Abraham is actually just exploring and discovering God's sense of justice. It's almost like God is very patiently waiting, you mm -hmm. know, and saying, that's right. For the sake of 10, I won't destroy that's ex it. That's exactly it. And, and, and going back to your initial statement about, you know, this, this goes back to the fact that Abraham is the recipient of the promise, right? Why does God talking to him about this at all? It's because God says, I'm going to tell Abraham what I'm going to do because Abraham is going to be a great nation and because the nations are going to model themselves on him. And I have singled him out in order that he may instruct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. What God is now letting Abraham in on by having this conversation is, what does God's sense of righteousness and justice look like? And this, so it's this, it's this moment of discovery and there's and there's a pedagogy to it, as you said, right? There's a there's a patient pedagogy here, right? He's gonna Abraham will get there. He'll get to the point where he realizes that I don't do this sort of thing capriciously, right? When God makes a decision to destroy, it is only because there's no other choice. It's it's because it's it's evil all the way down, right? And Abraham, they didn't have this conversation. Abraham could see the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and say. 
boy, that must have been real bad, but he wouldn't have learned anything about the way God works and would have been able to instruct his offspring and the future generations and the nation that will come from him. He wouldn't be able to teach them anything about God's justice. But this moment gives Abraham like an opportunity to not just witness, but to dispute and understand and explore what does it mean for God to to punish? What does it mean for God to save? Where are those lines? And now Abraham knows, right? It's not 50. It's not 40. Right. It's not only that God, it's not that God is going to destroy the righteous along with the wicked. It's the absolute opposite. God is not going to destroy the wicked because of the righteous, right? The, the presence of any righteous people at all is going to, is going to save. And I mean, I, I'm just thinking if only the passage were read this way all the time. <laughs> yeah. I feel that way about so many biblical passages, but you know, again, what I what I love about the way this one is constructed is you know, we keep talking about this, the patience of learning. Right? Who in this conversation is learning something? Again, traditionally, it's like God who is who is learning from Abraham. Oh, I like, yes, you're right, but the person who's learning is the one who who's sort of talking it through, and all God says is, "Yep, I won't do it for fifty. I won't do it for 45. Incredibly short sentences. And you watch Abraham like vocalize Bargain himself down. Exactly. (laughs) And talk himself down as if if he can't believe almost that like it's it's this low, right? Which you would for 10? Like, are you the kind of God that like 10 is? And it turns out the answer is yes. And that to me is what is otherwise almost a boring passage, like 50, 45, 40, 30. Like it's, it's so repetitive. But when you, read it this way as like as pedagogy about what god's justice entails i think that just makes that makes sense of the shape of the passage and it actually gives us it gives us as sort of stand-ins for abraham it gives us much more claim on the on the story as meaningful for us today absolutely thanks for listening And thank you, Professors Baden and Wenger, for your insights this week. For more Bible study resources, visit YaleBibleStudy.org and follow us on Twitter at BibleYale. Chapter, Verse, and Season is a production of the Center for Continuing Education at Yale Divinity School. It's produced by creator and managing editor Joel Baden, production manager Kelly Morrissey, associate producer Aidan Stoddart, and I'm your host and executive producer Helena Martin. Katie Stewart did the transcript for this episode, and our theme music is by Calvin Linderman. We'll be back with another conversation from chapter, verse, and season.